And if you have a Bible with you, can I encourage you to open along with me to James and to chapter 4 as we continue these studies in James's short epistle. Uh, last week, Jeff went through the first six verses of chapter 4, so we're going to pick up in verse 7 and read through to verse 12. So that is James chapter 4, beginning to read at verse, verse 7, and this is the word of the Lord. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Amen, and we thank God for his Well, folks, if you have your Bible with you, I'll encourage you to open with me again to James chapter four. Do please keep that open uh, as we consider these verses together. And I want to begin by asking you a question. And you don't have to put your hand up for this. In fact, it's maybe best you don't put your hand up. But uh, in light of what we've been saying to the boys and girls, I'll ask, are you a humble person? Or can you call yourself a humble person? And maybe as you think about that, you realize it's a good thing you don't put your hand up. Because of course, if you put your hand up and say, yes, I'm humble, that sort of proves that you're maybe not as humble as you like to think you are. You know, you can call yourself a great many things, but you can't really call yourself humble. You know, really, other people can say that about you. They can call you humble. But if you call yourself humble, you maybe reveal that you're not just as humble as you like to think that you are. If I put my hand up and say, actually, I am the most humble person that I know. I take great pride in just being as humble as I am. Well, that sounds a little bit ridiculous. That's just a great contradiction, isn't it? James has been warning us about a double-minded person who's unstable in all his ways, and the person who thinks he can be proud and humble in the same way at the same time is certainly double-minded. And throughout this epistle, James has a great concern for a consistent Christianity, a consistent Christianity. What he wants to tell us in these verses in particular is that the consistent Christian is humble. Or if we put it another way, the inconsistent Christian, the double-minded Christian, is proud. If we see there in verses 6 and in verses 10, that word humble uh, is used in both of those. And they sort of serve perhaps as bookends for us. And what we see then in the middle in verses 7 to 10 is just this long list of commands, these list of instructions James gives us on really how to live humbly before God. And then we look at verses 11 and 12, and we see there James gives us an example of humble living. He sort of contrasts the humble and the proud there. So we want to begin then looking at this long list of instructions that James has given us, that he's provided for us. And we notice where he starts there in verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. And the key word for us there is that word therefore, because when we see therefore, we wonder what came before. Why are we to submit to God? We're to submit to God in light of and as a consequence of what we see in verse 6. 
but God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's an essential truth that's going to guide us as we go through these verses together. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we're going to see a great uh, contrast between these things. So James begins by telling us that since God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, we are to submit ourselves to God. And straight away, we see that contradiction or that contrast at work because the proud will not submit to God. Submit implies power or authority, doesn't it? And you know if you're going to submit to someone, you'll submit to someone maybe greater than yourself, but not someone less than yourself. You're in work, and along comes some young apprentice. He's only been there two weeks, and he starts bossing you around. You're probably not going to listen to him. But along comes the manager or the owner or the boss, whoever it is, and asks you to do something. Well, his instructions carries a great deal more weight, and you know there you ought to submit. But people don't like that idea of submission, and it comes from pride. We want to live our lives our way. We don't want anyone telling us what to do or how to do it, least of all God. And yet, submitting unto God, submitting to the Word of God and the will of God is vitally important for us, because James does not just give us a bunch of random unrelated instructions here, but there's a logic, there's a sequence to it. We're to submit to God, why? Because we're also to resist the devil. And if we are to resist the devil, we do that as we submit unto God. If we uh, submit to the devil, we resist God. If we submit to God, we resist the devil. That's the logic that James is using here. And people maybe aren't aware of that, but whenever we turn from God, whenever we reject him and resist him, we are submitting ourselves unto the devil instead. The Apostle Paul writes a great deal of spiritual warfare, if you think of Ephesians 6, where he tells us we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness, and tells us also to put on the armor of God, you know, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and so on and so forth. James is really talking about much the same thing here, that idea of spiritual warfare. He wants us to be aware of this, that in the Christian life, there is an enemy, like a lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. And that in the Christian life, the devil is going to come. He's going to attack us. We need to be able to resist him to stand fast against his assaults. And how do we do that? We do that as we submit ourselves unto God and draw near unto him. And that's something that the proud cannot do. But the humble will and the humble must. If we think about spiritual warfare in terms of a war, a soldier, doesn't like what his commander is telling him, doesn't like the tactics, doesn't like the orders, thinks he's going to go off on his own and do his own thing. And what happens? He finds himself exposed and isolated, that when the enemy attacks then, his defenses will not hold. He is overwhelmed. He becomes an easy target, and he falls to defeat. But what we are to do is to draw near to God and submit ourselves unto him. Think even of the language of the Psalms where God is described as a refuge, a shelter, a fortress. And that is just what we need in spiritual warfare. We need someone whom we can draw near to and with whom we can find that refuge, that protection that only God can give. See, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 that if any man thinks he stand, let him take heed lest he fall. And that is the proud that we think in our own strength, we're okay just as we are. I don't really need to draw near to God. I don't need to depend upon God. If the devil comes, I'll deal with him. That man thinks he stands, and yet he stands upon sand, for he will surely fall. But the humble recognizes that since we are in spiritual warfare, what we need is spiritual help. We need the Holy Spirit at work in us. 
we need to draw near to God and to have that close relationship with him. And we maybe see this best of all demonstrated for us in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. What happens? God has told them not to eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. But they do not submit to the word of God. They reject it. The devil comes to tempt them. And as the devil knocks upon the door, what happens? But Adam and Eve open the door wide for the devil to walk on through. Rather than drawing near to God, Adam and Eve sought to put as much distance between themselves and God as was possible. And you notice that after they had sinned, they were ashamed of what they did. They tried to hide from God. They put that distance between them. And the sin of Adam and Eve ultimately was that of pride, wasn't it? Of a wanting to be like God, because that is what the proud do. But we see the humble, and we see that in Matthew 4 with Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Jesus, in submitting to the will of God, followed the Spirit's leading into the wilderness, where the devil came to tempt him not just once, but three times. And yet every time as the devil knocked upon the door, Jesus kept it shut, wouldn't give him an inch. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We see that after the third time the devil fled from Jesus. Maybe important to note that the devil didn't flee straight away. It was after the third time. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Perhaps not right away. Perhaps the temptations will keep coming. But as we resist, not in our own strength, but the strength God gives, the devil must flee for he cannot keep on knocking. And there was Jesus Christ, the ultimate picture of humility. The very Son of God who left aside his glory came into this world, not into a palace, but born in a, in a manger, into poverty. No fame, no riches, no wealth in this world. And the ultimate act of humility. The ultimate opposite of the proud. And yet we are not interested in Jesus Christ just as an example to follow. Because that would be a great burden, wouldn't it? To say, just be like Jesus. The proud says, no problem, I can do that. And the humble man says, just be like Jesus. Well, I can't, because he is the sinless savior and I, a sinner, in need of a savior. To cleanse your hands, to purify your heart, you say, no, well, I can't do that. I need someone else to do it for me. You see, the proud look at Jesus as an example to follow, thinking that if I meet that example, then Jesus will become my savior. I will make myself good enough to have earned salvation. But the humble looks at Jesus first as a savior, and then as an example to follow, that since you have been saved, live then like this. And there's a great contrast there between the proud and the humble, and we need to see it. James is bringing it to our attention here most vividly. Part of the, that is to draw near to God. That might be the most essential thing for us here, to draw near to God, knowing that he will draw near to us. Because the Christian life is not really a static thing. We're never really standing still. The Christian life is a bit like the tide of the sea. It's always coming in or going out. It ebbs or it flows. It has highs and lows, peaks and valleys. There's times when we draw near to God. There's other times when we drift from him. And perhaps we drift quite far. There's times when God feels very far from us and we know it's not that we have moved or it's not that God has moved, but it's that we have. We've drifted. And sometimes that drifting can be a deliberate thing. We think of the prodigal son. He did not want to submit unto his father but took the devil by the hand and walked off into the world to pursue all of his desires and pleasures. It was a very deliberate decision. And more often that drifting is a passive thing. Perhaps we don't even realize that it's happening to us. And all the busyness of life seems to overwhelm us. And we maybe don't have time to, to pray as we ought to. We close our eyes and we just feel ourselves falling asleep. 
We're in such a rush, we don't have time to properly read the Bible. We just look at a wee verse. It's almost just to tick the box and say, I did that today. But we're not taking the time really to be with God. We've missed church one week, two weeks. Sure, I'll just catch it online. That's just as good. But it's not because we're denying ourselves and missing out on that precious Christian fellowship. And as we do all of these things, as these things happen to us passively, we're not deliberately doing them. So we find ourselves drifting from God. And before we know it, just as when you're out at sea and the tide carries you from the shore, suddenly you look up and you're 100 yards off and you start panicking, you start flailing about there. What are we to do? Or we're to draw near to God, knowing that God draws near to us. Because isn't that a wonderful picture in the parable of the prodigal son, that as he comes back to his father, as he wises up, as he repents, comes back to his father. So the father sees him coming and runs to meet his son. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That yes, we may drift, but God will throw us that life ring. He will pull us back onto himself. We must draw near to God. We must guard ourselves against drifting. And we do that through the very things that we've just been talking about. Prayer, Bible reading, Christian fellowship together. Because whenever we read the Bible, we need to be aware that this is the living word of God and God is speaking to us through it. Whenever we pray, we're aware that we are talking to God and what a privilege that is. Prayer and Bible reading together and suddenly the Christian life becomes a conversation, a drawing near to God in conversation as he speaks and we respond. We do it together as we meet either on a Sunday or during the week in Christian fellowship because it's a personal conversation, but it's not a private one, it's a public one. Public yet personal. And we do all of these things, what we maybe call the means of grace. And it is through these things, not by doing these things that we're saved. Nobody's saved because they read the Bible every day or because they never miss a Sunday at church. But doing these things greatly equip us. They refresh us. They help us to draw near to God. Think about even your phone. Most people probably charge their phone every day, don't they? You don't charge your phone on a Sunday and think, I'll get through the whole week on that one charge. And that's how people maybe treat the Christian life. I come to church on a Sunday. There I'm encouraged. There I'm refreshed. And I feel great for the rest of the day. I feel great on Monday, Tuesday a little less great. By the time Friday, Saturday comes, I'm exhausted. I'm done. I'm worn out. I've drifted from God because I haven't been drawing near to him throughout the week and finding that refreshment through his word. I was speaking to a man a while ago who likes to go to church a couple of times a year, he told me. And his reason, well, it's important to shake the hand of your maker. That's what it was, to shake the hand of your maker. That's a little bit ridiculous. That's no idea of drawing near to God, just to shake the hand of the maker. Because in his eyes, if he just turned up to church half a dozen times a year, God was happy with him and he was happy with God. And that's how people treat it, just a nod of the head, a tip of the hat towards God. Shake the hand of your maker. But that's not drawing near to God. That's looking at God from a distance. That's the one who has drifted and who doesn't even know what it is to draw near. That's to be proud and to think we're all right in our own strength, but that is to be sure that we will fall. Instead, we must draw near to God. Come often. Come frequently. Come unto him and find that grace to help us to stand, to help us to resist the devil. And that's uh, how we are to come. These little things, prayer, Bible reading, Christian fellowship, they help us to draw near to God. But even before them, there is one thing perhaps more fundamental in drawing near to God, and that is repentance. It is repentance. Why? Well, because the greatest obstacle, the greatest divide, the separation between man and God is that of 
sin. It is sin that separates us from God. And if you look at the language James uses here, particularly verse 9, you see he takes sin extremely seriously. He sees the sinfulness of sin. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Sin separates us from God. And isn't that why Jesus went to the cross? Isn't that why he was our sinless Savior? That as Jesus died on the cross, there was a great curtain in the temple in Jerusalem. And it was torn in two from top to bottom, not torn by man, but torn by God. God himself removed the divide. For you see, that curtain divided the temple from the most part of it to the most holy place that only the high priest could enter and could do so only once a year that the high priest could come before God on behalf of the people. But in the death of Christ, as Jesus conquered sin, so it was that the divide is removed. It's not just the high priest, but everyone, man, woman, child, can come unto God, that we have access through Jesus Christ, that the divide is removed, sin defeated. And that's the most glorious truth there is. Our sin is defeated. And yet, as Christians, we do not yet live sinless lives. One day we will when we're perfected in glory, but in this life, no. We still struggle with sin. The devil still assaults us with temptation, and because none of us are perfect men, we do stumble and we sin. And we find cleansing, we find grace for forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ. That barrier can never be reestablished. We know we can't lose our salvation, but what we can do is lose the joy of salvation, and the devil will seek to rob us of that. And so when we sin, it's almost as if we sort of erect other obstacles in front of us that would keep us from God, that put a distance between us and him. And we need to take sin most seriously because nothing will damage our relationship with God such as our own sin and the sinfulness of our own hearts. And again, the proud man is blind to this reality, but the humble see it. We've been going through this book, uh, Life Together, a summer book club by Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He has another very helpful book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that, Bonhoeffer writes of what he calls cheap grace. Cheap grace. Now, we know that we are saved by the grace of God and that that grace is free. There's nothing we can do to earn God's grace. There's nothing we can do to purchase it or to make ourselves deserving of it. All we can do is cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. But just because grace is free doesn't mean it's cheap. Because how was that grace secured for us? Well, it was through the cross of Christ. It was in the death of Jesus Christ himself that God's own son, the sinless savior, went to die the most brutal and horrific and barbaric of deaths to suffer a punishment we deserve in our place. And he did all of that so that we might know his grace. And so as Christian people, if we take a casual view of sin, a trivial view of sin, if we think it only a minor, insignificant sort of a thing, what we do is we dishonor and we degrade the death of Christ for us. We make God's grace to be a cheap thing where we think so little of it. Well, Martin Luther, of course, we know him for being that great German reformer. And how he ignited the Reformation was when he went to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg and nailed his 95 thesis to the door. And the first of those 95 thesis was this, that when our Lord Jesus said, repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life should be repentance. You see, nobody, nobody who ever lived probably had a greater understanding of the sinfulness of sin than Martin Luther. He was utterly crushed by it. 
and he saw there was nothing in his own power or effort he could do. And he was crippled by this weight of sin upon himself. But the grace of God brought him glorious and wonderful relief. And so he says, the whole of the Christian life is to be repentance. And what does that mean? It's a turning away from sin. It's a drawing near to God. Luther is telling us to draw near to God. Let not sin be an obstacle to keep us from God, to put any distance between us and the Father. The whole of the Christian life ought to be repentance and a drawing near unto him. Puritan uh, Thomas Watson said that before a man can come to Christ, he must first come to himself. Before a man can come to Christ, he must first come to himself and how right he was. Because the proud do not come to themselves. They don't see the problem of sin. They don't see that it's an issue. They don't see their need of a savior. And they wander off isolated to be attacked and unslaughtered by the devil. But the humble say, I see I am a sinner in need of a savior. O Lord, be merciful to me. We need to see ourselves humbly before we can come to Christ. And as we do that, yes, the devil will still attack us. And you know that's actually not the worst thing in the world. Because if the devil's attacking us, if he's coming to tempt us, serious as that is, and as hard as we should fight against him, to stand against him that he would not succumb to temptation, at least we know it shows the devil has an interest in us. And he has an interest in us, why? Because we're probably too close to God. He'd rather that we were closer to him. The proud man doesn't see the ground on which he stands, doesn't see the problem of sin. Very often the devil's happy to just let him go on as he is. And the devil will attack the humble. And the humble must be ready for those attacks to come. And we are ready as we submit ourselves unto God and we draw near to him. We might see an example of this in the Gospels. And there's an instance when a tax collector and a Pharisee both go to the temple to pray. One proud, one humble. One who sees himself and the other whose pride has made him totally blind. And the Pharisee stands up and he says, Lord, I thank you that I am not as other men, that I am not sinful like them, that my hands are clean, that my heart is pure. And then the tax collector gets up. A tax collector, a man who is viewed as a traitor by his own people, his own family probably want nothing to do with him. A man who got into that position through selfishness and greed. He's despised by everyone, not a friend in the world. And he stands there, and all he has is this one plea, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, that is the prayer of a humble heart. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And James shows us an example of this in verses 11 and 12, different as they may feel. You look at verses 11 and 12, you maybe think James is bringing in a new topic here, some sort of change in thought. But really these verses serve as an example here. They're not a transition to anything else. They're an example of this contrast between the proud and the humble. It's like that Pharisee and that tax collector. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Now we know that for James, nothing reveals our sin and double-mindedness quite like our speech. We thought about that when we were in James chapter three a few weeks ago. We say that sin is anything we say, think, or do that breaks God's law. And our thoughts don't really reveal that, do they? Because 
Obviously, God knows our thoughts. We can't keep them hidden from him. But the people around us, they can't read our minds. Our thoughts don't really reveal who we are. Our actions and our words will do that more, but certainly our words even more than our actions. If you take a strong disliking to someone, you're very unlikely to murder them, or at least we hope you are. Hopefully, you won't even take the desire to go and punch them or attack them in any way. Not physically. But with our words, we'll speak evil against them. We're much more likely to do that. And the NIV translates this term, speak evil, as slander. And certainly that's a very popular way of speaking evil against people. But I think the idea of speak evil in the broader sense, it's broader than just slander. There's more than one way we can do it. Many of you have maybe picked up that little book, Radically Whole, by David Gibson, as we've been going through the Epistle of James. It's been a big help. And David Gibson says that slander and flattery are two sides of the same coin. Slander and flattery. Why? Because they're both ways of speaking evil to people. One we do to the face, and the other we do behind the back. See, there's a great many ways we might speak evil of people. And notice there James says, brothers. Why? Well, because this evil speaking is occurring within the church. James has witnessed that even among Christians. And what does it look like? Well, it manifests itself in a judgmental and critical spirit much like the proud Pharisee who just thought himself so much better than everyone else, and everyone else was such a dreadful sinner compared to him. James talks a lot about judging here in verse 11. And we know Jesus talked about judging too. If you think of Matthew 7 and verse 1 during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. And people will jump on verse 11 there and on Matthew 7 and 1 and say that Christians should never judge that you should never utter a judgment with your lips. And isn't that how Christians are so often depicted in the media? As judgmental people, like that Pharisee. And then they're shown to be hypocrites. Why? Well, because Jesus said you shouldn't judge. Jesus also said in John 7 and 24, told his disciples, judge with just judgment. So we have an instance where Jesus tells us to judge, and we have an instance where he tells us not to judge. Is Jesus contradicting himself? Is Jesus contradicting James? No, absolutely not. Of course not. But what we see is that there are two different types of judging. There is a proud judgment and there is a humble judgment. There is a right judgment and there is a wrong judgment. The right judgment comes from a humble heart. It is to judge with just judgment. Jesus himself gives us the example. Whenever you hear teaching, you must test, is it false teaching or is it faithful teaching? Test it against the word of God. You must discern. You must judge. You must engage your mind in that way. That's what Jesus tells us. And if we are to be salt and light in a wicked world that celebrates all manner of cruelty and evil and unrighteousness, then we must make a judgment call upon that. We are called to be salt and light, to call people back to God, to call them to repentance. And that requires a judgment be made, but it must be a just judgment. Even the example that we see in Scripture is of a Christian man who leaves his wife and moves in with another woman. And what are we to do? Are we to say, well, who am I to judge? That's none of my business. Well, no, the Bible tells us that the elders go to that man and they call him to repentance before God to leave this woman to go back to his wife and seek forgiveness from her also. Because that is a just judgment, a right judgment, a humble judgment. And we must contrast this with the judgment of the proud a wrong judgment, what we might call a a judgmentalism, that critical spirit that only ever seeks to condemn others and to put them down. A critical spirit 
the sort of majors and minors on sins. You know, we major on the sins of others and we minor on our own. We magnify the sins that someone else has done so that we can easily overlook our own. We notice the speck in the eye of another and we do take no notice of the log in our own eye. It's the issue of pride once more because we think there's always someone else worse than me. I can always find someone worse than me. And James is telling us here in verse 11 that that pride is the very same pride of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. How so? Well, in their pride, Adam and Eve sought to usurp God. They wanted to be like God, to be as God, and to sit upon his throne. And James says there's only one lawgiver and judge who alone can save and destroy. And it's not us. But when we judge others, we would seek to usurp God and to sit upon his throne as judge, that we could save and destroy with our own words. It is the issue of pride. But since God looks upon his people as a father rather than a judge, who are we then to relate to them as judge rather than brother or sister? For we see how this breaks the law of love in both points, doesn't it? We fail to love our neighbor as we judgmentally criticize and condemn them. And we fail to love God as we seek to usurp his place and sit upon his throne as judge. That's what the proud do. But the humble say with the apostle Paul, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that includes me. That includes me. My sins might look very different from my neighbors or my brothers. But at the end of the day, we are all sinners and we are all debtors to the grace of God. I cannot stand as a Pharisee and make some boast. I can only as the tax collector say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Who are we to judge our neighbor? James tells us we are no one. We are no one. We must see the wickedness of our own sin, repent of it, and draw near to God. Again, that Puritan Thomas Watson writes that the more bitterness we taste in sin, the more sweetness we shall taste in Christ. And when we see the bitterness of sin, when we see its ugliness and its destructive power and the wickedness that comes from it, then we see the joy that comes in salvation through Jesus Christ. We taste the sweetness and the beauty of Jesus. And that is what we need. There is joy in salvation. There's great joy for the Christian as we come to know it in Jesus Christ. Who are we to judge our neighbor? We are no one. All we can do is submit ourselves to God and draw near to him. Resist the devil. Be wretched and weep and mourn over sin. Find cleansing, grace and forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ. For there is no other name given under heaven and among men, by which we must be saved. Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this word to us. Lord, we come to confess that pride may be found in our hearts. So easily we look upon others and judge them worse than ourselves. So easily we think that when the devil comes, we will be able to stand against him. So easily we think we do not need to draw near to you because we're doing quite all right just as we are. 
O Lord, humble us of this pride. Take it from us. Fill us with humble hearts. Humble hearts that can offer no petition, no plea, but Lord, be merciful on me, a sinner. Be gracious to us this day, O Father. Help us to look upon Jesus Christ and to see his beauty, to taste of his sweetness, to taste and see that the Lord is good, to find that cleansing, that purification that comes only in him. For we cannot stand in our own strength. Teach us, Lord, to depend on you, to look to you, and to find all that we need there. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.